0: chapter 19 of bleak house by charles dickens this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 19 moving on it is the long vacation in the regions of chancery lane the good ships law and equity those teak-built copper-bottomed iron-fastened brazen-faced and not by any means fast-sailing clippers are laid up in ordinary the flying Dutchman, with a crew of ghostly clients imploring all whom they may encounter to peruse their papers, has drifted for the time being heaven knows where. The courts are all shut up, the public office lies in hot sleep, Westminster Hall itself is a shady solitude where nightingales might sing, and a tenderer class of suitors than is usually found there walk. The Temple, Chancery Lane, Sergeants Inn and Lincolns Inn even unto the fields are like tidal harbours at low water, where stranded proceedings, officers at anchor, idle clerks lounging on topsided stools that will not recover their perpendicular until the current term sets in, lie high and dry upon the ooze of the long vacation. Outer doors of chambers are shut up by the score messages and parcels are to be left at the porter's lodge by the bushel a crop of grass would grow in the chinks of the stone pavement outside lincoln's inn hall but that the ticket porters who have nothing to do beyond sitting in the shade there with their white aprons over their heads to keep the flies off grub it up and eat thoughtfully there's only one judge in town even he only comes twice a week to sit in chambers if the country folks of those assize towns on his circuit could see him now—no full-bottom wig, no red petticoats, no fur, no javelin men, no white wands—merely a close-shaven gentleman in white trousers and a white hat, with a sea bronze on the judicial countenance and a strip of bark peeled by the solar rays from the judicial nose—who calls in at the shellfish shop as he comes along and drinks iced ginger beer the bar of England is scattered over the face of the earth. How can England get on through four long summer months without its bar? Which, its acknowledged refuge in adversity and its only legitimate triumph in prosperity, is beside the question? Assuredly, that shield of Buckler of Britannia are not in present wear the learned gentleman who was always so tremendously indignant at the unprecedented outrage committed on the feelings of his client by the opposite party that he never seems likely to recover is doing so infinitely better than might be expected in switzerland the learned gentleman who does the withering business and who blights all opponents with his gloomy sarcasm is as merry as a greek at a french watering-place the learned gentleman who weeps by the pint on the smallest provocation has not shed a tear these six weeks. The very learned gentleman who has cooled the natural heat of his gingerly complexion in pools and fountains of law until he has become great in knotty arguments for term-time, when he poses the drowsy bench with legal chaff, inexplicable to the uninitiated, and to most of the initiated too is roaming with characteristic delight in aridity and dust about Constantinople. Other dispersed fragments of the same great palladium are to be found on the canals of Venice, at the second cataract of the Nile, in the baths of Germany, and sprinkled on the sea sand all over the English coast. Scarcely one is to be encountered in the deserted region of Chancery Lane. If such a lonely member of the bar do flit across the waste. And come upon a prowling suitor who is unable to leave off haunting the scenes of his anxiety, they frighten one another and retreat into opposite shades. It is the hottest long vacation known for many years. All the young clerks are madly in love, and according to their various degrees of pine for bliss with the beloved object at Margate, Ramsgate, or Gravesend, all the middle-aged clerks think their families are too large. All the unowned dogs who stray into the inns of court and pant about staircases and other dry places seeking water give howls of aggravation. All the blind men's dogs in the streets draw their masters against pumps or trip them over buckets. A shop with a sun-blind and a watered pavement and a bowl of gold and silver fish in the window is a sanctuary. Temple Bar gets so hot that it is to the adjacent Strand and Fleet Street what well, a heater is, in an urn, and keeps them simmering all night. There are offices about the inns of court in which a man might be cool, if any coolness were worth purchasing at such a price in dullness, but the little thoroughfares immediately outside those retirements seem to blaze. In Mr. Crook's court it is so hot that the people turn their houses inside out and sit in chairs upon the pavement, Mr. Crook included who there pursues his studies with his cat who never is too hot by his side the soul's arms has discontinued the harmonic meetings for the season and little swills is engaged at the pastoral gardens down the river where he comes out in quite an innocent manner and sings comic ditties of a juvenile complexion calculated as the bill says not to wound the feelings of the most fastidious mind over all the legal neighbourhood there hangs like some great veil of rust or gigantic cobweb. The idleness and pensiveness of the long vacation. Mr. Snagsby, law stationer of Crook's Court, Cursiter Street, is sensible of the influence, not only in his mind as a sympathetic and contemplative man, but also in his business as a law stationer, aforesaid. He has more leisure for musing in Staple Inn and in the rolls yard during the long vacation than other seasons. And he says to the two apprentices, what a thing it is, in such a hot weather, to think that you live in an island with the sea rolling and bowling right around you. Guster is busy in the little drawing room on this present afternoon in the long vacation. But Mr and Mrs Snagsby have it in a contemplation to receive company. The expected guests are rather select than numerous, being Mr and Mrs Chadband and no more. For Mr. Chadband's being much given to describe himself, both verbally and in writing, as a vessel, he is occasionally mistaken by strangers for a gentleman connected with navigation. But he is, as he expresses it, in the ministry. Mr. Chadband is remarkable to say on the greatest of subjects. Mr. Chadband is attached to no particular denomination, and is considered by his persecutors to have nothing so very remarkable to say on the greatest of subjects as to render his volunteering on his own account at all incumbent on his conscience but he has his followers and mrs snagsby is of the number mrs snagsby has but recently taken a passage upward by the vessel chadband and her attention was attracted to that bark a one when she was something flushed by the hot weather my little woman says mr snagsby to the sparrows in the stable inn likes to have a religion rather sharp you see so guster is much impressed regarding herself for the time being as the handmaid of chadband whom she knows to be endowed with the gift of holding forth for four hours at a stretch prepares a little drawing-room for tea all the furniture is shaken and dusted the portraits of mr and mrs snagsby are touched up with a wet cloth the best tea service is set forth and there is excellent provision made of dainty new bread crusty twists cool fresh butter "'thin slices of ham, tongue, and German sausage, "'and delicate little rows of anchovies nestling in parsley, "'not to mention new-laid eggs to be brought up warm in a napkin, "'and hot-buttered toast. "'For Chadband is rather a consuming vessel, "'the persecutors say a gorging vessel, "'and can wield such weapons of the flesh "'as a knife and fork remarkably well. "'Mr. Snagsby in his best coat, "'looking at all the preparations when they are completed,' and coughing his cough of deference behind his hand, says to Mrs Snagsby, What time did you expect, Mr and Mrs Chadband, my love? At six, says Mrs Snagsby. Mr Snagsby observes in a mild and casual way that it's gone that. Perhaps you'd like to begin without them, is Mrs Snagsby's reproachful remark. Mr Snagsby does look as if he would like it very much, but he says with his cough of mildness, No, my dear, I merely named the time. What's time, says Mrs Snagsby, to eternity? Very true, my dear, says Mr Snagsby. Only when a person lays in victuals for tea, a person does it with a view, perhaps t- more to time. When a time is named for having tea, it's better to come up to it. To come up to it, Mrs Snagsby repeats with severity, up to it, as if Mr Chadband was a fighter. Not at all, my dear, says Mr Snagsby. Here, Guster, who had been looking out of the bedroom window, comes rustling and scratching down the little staircase like a popular ghost and falling flush into the drawing-room announces that mr and mrs chadband have appeared in the court the bell at the inner door in the passage immediately thereafter tinkling she is admonished by mrs snagsby on pain of instant reconsignment to her patron's safe, not to omit the ceremony of announcement much discomposed in her nerves which were previously in the best order by this threat she so fearfully mutilates that point of state as to announce Mr. and Mrs. Cheeseming," at least which I mean to say what's her name, and retires conscience-stricken from the presence. Mr. Chadband is a large yellow man with a fat smile and the general appearance of having a good deal of train oil in his system. Mrs. Chadband is a stern, severe-looking, silent woman. Mr. Chadband moves softly and cumbrously, not unlike a bear, has been taught to walk upright he is very much embarrassed about the arm as if they were inconvenient to him and he wanted to grovel is very much in a perspiration about the head and never speaks without first putting up his great hand as delivering a token to his hearers that he is going to edify them my friends says mr chagman peace be on this house on the master thereof on the mysteries thereof on the young maidens and on the young men my friends why do i wish for peace what is peace is it war? No. Is it strife? No. It is lovely and gentle and beautiful and pleasant, and serene and joyful. Oh, yes, therefore, my friends, I wish for peace upon you and yours. In consequence of Mrs. Snagsby looking deeply edified, Mr. Snagsby thinks it expedient on the whole to say amen, which is well received. Now, my friends, proceeds Mr. Chatband, since I am upon this theme, Guster presents herself to Mrs. Snagsby in a in a spectral bass voice, without removing her eyes from Chadband, says with dreadful distinctness, Go away. Now, my friend, says Chadband, since I am upon the theme, and in my lowly path improving it, Guster is heard unaccountably to murmur. 1,782 The spectral voice repeats it more solemnly. Go away. Now, my friend, says Mr. Chadband, I will inquire in the spirit of love. Still, Guster reiterates, one thousand seven hundred and eighty two mr chadband pausing with the resignation of a man accustomed to be persecuted and languidly folding his chin into his fat smile says let us hear the maiden speak maiden one thousand seven hundred and eighty two if you please sir which he wished to know what a shilling were for says guster breathless for returns mrs chadband for his fair guster replied that he insists on one and eightpence or on summoning the party mrs snagsby and mrs chadband are proceeding to grow shrill in indignation when mr chadband quiets the tumult by lifting up his hand my friend says he i remember a duty unfilled yesterday it is right that i should be chastened in some penalty i ought not to murmur rachel pay the eightpence while mrs snagsby drawing her breath looks hard at mr snagsby who should say you hear this apostle while Mr. Chadband glows with humility and train-oil, Mrs. Chadband pays the money. It is Mrs. Chadband's habit, it is the head and front of his pretensions indeed, to keep this sort of debtor and creditor account in the smallest items and to post it publicly on the most trivial occasions. My friends, says Chadband, eightpence is not much. It might justly have been one and fourpence. It might justly have been half a crown. Oh, let us be joyful. Oh, let us be joyful with which remark which appears from its sound to be an extract in verse mr chadband stalks to the table and before taking up a chair lifts his admonitory hand my friends says he what is this which we now behold is being spread before us refreshment do we need refreshment then my friends we do and why do we need refreshment my friends because we are but mortal because we are but sinful because we are but of the earth because we are not of the air can we fly my friends we cannot why can we not fly my friend mr snagsby presuming in the success of his last point ventures to observe in a cheerful and rather knowing tone no wings but is immediately frowned down by mrs snagsby i say my friends pursues mr chadband utterly rejecting and obliterating mr snagsby's suggestion why we cannot fly is it because we are calculated to walk it is could we walk my friends without strength we could not what should we do without strength my friends our legs would refuse to bear us our knees would double up our ankles would turn over we should come to the ground and then from whence my friends in a human point of view do we derive that strength that is necessary to our limbs is it says chadband glancing over the table from bread in various forms from butter which is churned from the milk which is yielded unto us by the cow from the eggs which are laid by the fowl from ham from tongue from sausage and from such like and let us partake of the good things which are set before us the persecutors deny that there was any particular gift in mr chadband's piling verbose flights of stairs one upon the other after this fashion but this can only be received as proof of their determination to persecute as it must be within everybody's experience that the chadband style of oratory is widely received and much admired. Mr. Chadband, however, having concluded for the present, sits down at Mr. Snagsby's table and lays about him prodigiously. The conversion of nutriment of any sort into oil of the quality already mentioned appears to be a process so inseparable from the constitution of this exemplary vessel that in beginning to eat and drink he may be described as always becoming a kind of considerable oil mills or other large factory for the production of that article on a wholesale scale on the present evening of the long vacation in cook's court cursitor street he does such a powerful stroke of business that the warehouse appears to be quite full when the works cease at this period of the entertainment guster who has never recovered from her first failure but has neglected no possible or impossible means of bringing the establishment and herself into contempt, among which may be briefly enumerated her unexpectedly performing, clashing military music on Mr Chadband's head with plates, and afterwards crowning that gentleman with muffins, at which period of the entertainment, Guster whispers to Mr Snagsby that he is wanted, and being wanted in the, not to put too fine a point in it, in the shop, says Mr Snagsby, rising, Perhaps this good company will excuse me for half a minute. Mr Snagsby descends and finds the two apprentices contemplating a police constable who holds a ragged boy by the arm. Why, bless my heart, says Mr Snagsby. What's the matter? This boy, says the constable, though he's repeatedly he told us he won't move on. I'm always a moving on, sir, cries the boy, wiping away his grimy tears with his arm. I've always been a moving and a moving on ever since I was born where can i possibly move to sir more nor i do move he won't move on says the constable calmly with a slight professional hitch of his neck involving its better settlement in his stiff stock. although he's been repeatedly cautioned and therefore i'm obliged to take him into custody he's as obstinate as a young Golloff, as i know he won't move on oh my eye where can i move to cries the boy clutching quite desperately at his hair and beating his bare feet upon the floor of Mr Snagsby's passage. Don't you come, none of that, or shall I make blessed short work of you, says the constable, giving him a passionless shake. My instructions are that you ought to move on. I've told you so five hundred times. But where, cries the boy. Well, really, constable, you know, says Mr Snagsby wistfully, and coughing behind his hand, his cough of great perplexity and doubt, that really does seem a question. Where, do you know? My instructions don't go into that, replies the Constable. My instructions are that this boy is to move on. Do you hear, Joe? It's nothing to you or to anyone else. The great lights of the parliamentary sky have failed for some years in this business to set you an example of moving on. The one grand recipe remains for you. The profound philosophical prescription. The be-all and end-all of your strange existence upon Earth. Move on you are by no means to move off joe for the great lights can't agree at all about that move on mr snagsby says nothing to this effect says nothing at all indeed but coughs his forlornest cough expressive of no thoroughfare in any direction by this time mr and mrs chadven and mr snagsby hearing the altercation have appeared upon the stairs Guster having never left the end of the passage the whole household are assembled the simple question is sir says the constable whether you know this boy he says you do mrs snagsby on her elevation instantly cries out no he don't my little woman says mr snagsby looking up the staircase my love permit me pray have a moment's patience my dear i do know something of this lad and what i know of him i can't say that there's any harm perhaps on the contrary constable to whom the law-stationer relates his joyful and woeful experience suppressing the half-crown fact. Well, says the constable, so far as it seems he had grounds for what he said. When I took him into custody up in Holborn, he said you knew him. Well, On no, that, the young man who was in the crowd said he was acquainted with you, and you were a respectable housekeeper, and if I'd call and make the inquiry, he'd appear. The young man don't seem inclined to keep his word, but, oh, here is the young man. Enter Mr. Guppy. Who nods to mr snagsby and touches his hat with the chivalry of clerkship to the ladies on the stairs i was strolling away from the office just now and i found this row going on says mr guppy to the law stationer as your name was mentioned i thought it was the right thing we should be looked into it was very good-natured of you sir says mr snagsby i am obliged to you now mr snagsby relates his experience again suppressing the half-crown fact now i know where you live says the constable and then to joe you live down at tom all alone's that's a nice innocent place to live in isn't it? i can't go and live in no nicer place sir replies joe they wouldn't have nothing to say to me if i was to go to a nice innocent place for to live who would go and let a nice innocent lodging to such a regular as me you're very poor ain't you says the constable yes i am indeed sir very really poor in general replies joe "'I'll leave you to judge now. "'I took these two half-crowns out of him,' "'says the constable, producing them to the company. "'I'm only putting my hand upon him.' And "'Then what's left, Mr. Snagsby?" says Joe. "Out of a sovereign that was given to me "'by a lady in a whale, "'as she was a servant, "'as come to my crossing one night "'and asked to be shown to see her house. "'And he asked what embers you'd give "'the right and two died at. "'In the burying-ground what he's buried in.' "'She says to me, "'she says, "'Are you the boy in the ink, witch?' "'I says, "'Yes,' I says.' She says to me, and she says, "Can you show them all the places?" I says, "Yes, I can." I says, and she sets to me to do it, and I done it, and she give me a sovereign, and I upped it. I ain't much of a sovereign either, says Joe with dirty tears, for I had to pay both five bob down in Tom all alone for I'd square it up to give me the change. And then a young man he thieved another five while I was asleep, and another boy thieved ninepence and the landlord he stood drains around with a lot more on it. You don't expect anybody to believe this about the lady and the Sovereign, do you? Says the Constable, eyeing him aside with ineffable disdain. Don't know as I do, sir, replies Joe. Don't expect nothing at all sir, much, but that's a true history, is it? Do you see what he is? The Constable observes to the audience. Well, Mr Snagsby, if I don't lock him up this time, will you engage for his moving on? No, cries Mrs Snagsby from the stairs. My little woman pleads her husband. Constable, I have no doubt he'll move on you know you really must do it says mr snagsby i'm oh, every ways agreeable sir says the hapless joe do it then observes the constable you know what you've got to do do it and recollect that you won't get off so easy the next time get hold of your money now the sooner you're off five mile off the better for all parties with this farewell hint and pointing generally to the setting sun as a likely place to move on to the constable bids his auditors good afternoon and makes the echoes of cook's court perform slow music for him as he walks away on the shady side, carrying his iron-bound hat in his hand for a little ventilation. Now, Joe's improbable story concerning the lady and the sovereign had awakened more or less the curiosity of the company. Mr. Guppy, who had an inquiring mind in such matters of evidence, who had been suffering severely from the lassitude of the long vacation, takes that interest in the case, that he enters on a regular cross-examination of the witness which is found so interesting by the ladies that Mrs. Snagsby politely invites him to step upstairs and drink a cup of tea, if he will excuse the disarranged state of the tea-table, consequent on their previous exertions. Mr. Guppy, yielding his assent to this proposal, Joe is requested to follow into the drawing-room doorway, where Mr. Guppy takes him in hand as a witness, patting him into this shape, that shape, and the other shape, like a butterman dealing with so much butter and worrying him according to the best models. Nor is the examination, unlike many such model displays, both in respect of its eliciting nothing and of its being lengthy, for Mr Guppy is sensible of his talent, and Mrs. Snagsby feels not only that it gratifies her inquisitive disposition, that it lifts her husband's establishment higher up in the law. During the progress of this keen encounter, the vessel Chadband, being merely engaged in the oil trade, Gets around and waits to be floated off. Well, says Mr. Guppy, either this boy sticks to it like cobbler's wax, or there's something out of the common here that beats ever came to my way at Kenjin Carboys. Mrs. Chadband whispers to Mrs. Snagsby, who exclaims, You don't say so. For years, replied Mrs. Chadband. Has known Kenjin Carboys office for years, Mrs. Snagsby triumphantly explains to Mr. Guppy. Mrs. Chadband, this gentleman's wife, Reverend Mr. Chadband, oh indeed says mr guppy before i married my present husband says mrs Chadband, was you a party in anything ma'am says mr guppy transferring his cross-examination no not a party in anything ma'am says mr guppy mrs Chadband shakes her head perhaps you were acquainted with somebody who was a party in something ma'am says mr guppy who likes nothing better than to model his conversation on forensic principles not exactly that either, repeats Mr. Guppy. Very good. Pray, ma'am, was it a lady of your acquaintance who had some transactions? We will not at present say what transactions. With Kenge in Carboys' office? Or was it a gentleman of your acquaintance? Take time, ma'am. We shall come to it presently. Man or woman, ma'am? Neither, says Mrs. Chadband as before. Oh, a child, says Mr. Guppy, throwing on the admiring Mrs. Snagsby the regular acute professional eye which is thrown on British jurymen. "'Now, ma'am, perhaps you have the kindness to tell us what, child?' "'You've got it at last, sir,' says Mrs. Chadband, with another hard-favoured smile. "'Well, sir, it was before your time, most likely, judging from your appearance. "'I was left in charge of a child named Esther Summerson, "'who was put out in life by Mrs. Kenge and Carboy.' "'Miss Summerson, ma'am!' cries Mr. Guppy, excited. "'I call her Esther Summerson,' says Mrs. Chadband, with austerity. "'There was no missing of the girl in my time. It, it was Esther.' Hester do this, Hester do that, and she was made to do it. My dear man, returns Mr. Guppy, moving across the small apartment. The humble individual who now addresses you received that young lady in London when she first came here from the establishment to which you have alluded. Allow me to have the pleasure of taking you by the hand. Mr. Chadband, at last seeing his opportunity, makes his accustomed signal and rises with a smoking head which he dabs with his pocket handkerchief. Mrs. Snagsby whispers, hush. My friends, says Chadman, we have partaken in moderation, which was certainly not the case as far as he was concerned, of the comforts which have been provided for us. May this house live upon the fatness of the land. May corn and wine be plentiful therein. May it grow, may it thrive, may it prosper, may it advance. May it proceed, may it press forward. But, my friends, have we partaken of anything else? We have. My friends, of what else have we partaken? Of spiritual profit, yes. From whence we derive that spiritual profit, my young friend? Stand forth, Joe. Thus apostrophizes, gives a slouch backward, and another slouch forward, and another slouch to each side, and confronts the eloquent Chadband with evident doubts of his intentions. My young friend says, Chadband, you are to us a pearl. You are to us a diamond. You are to us a gem. You are to us a jewel. And why, my young friend? I don't know, replies Joe, I don't know nothing. My young friend, says Chadben, because you know nothing, that you are to as a gem and a jewel, for what you are, my young friend, are you a beast of the field, a bird of the air? No, a fish of the sea or river. No, you are a human boy, my young friend, a human boy, oh, oh glorious to be a human boy. And why glorious, my young friend, because you're capable of receiving the lessons of wisdom. Because you are capable of profiting by this discourse which I now deliver for your good. Because you are not a stick or a staff or stock or stone or a post or a pillar. O running stream of sparkling joy, to be a soaring human boy. And do you cool yourself in that stream now, my young friend? No. Why do you not cool yourself in that stream now? Because you are in a state of darkness. Because you are in a state of obscurity. Because you are in a state of sinfulness. Because you are in a state of bondage. My young friend, what is bondage? Let us, in a spirit of love, inquire. At this threatening stage of the discourse, Joe, who seems to have been gradually going out of his mind, smears his right arm over his face and gives a terrible yawn. Mrs. Snagsby indignantly expresses her belief that he is the limb of the arch-fiend. My friends, says Mr. Chapman, with his persecuted chin folding itself into a fat smile again as he looks round, it is right that i should be humble it is right that i should be tried it is right that i should be mortified it is right that i should be corrected i stumbled on sabbath last when i thought with my pride of three hours improving the account is now favourably balanced my creditor has accepted a composition oh let us be joyful joyful oh let us be joyful great sensation on the part of mrs snagsby my friend says Chapman, looking around him in conclusion "'I will not proceed with my young friend now. "'Will you come tomorrow, my young friend, "'and inquire of this good lady where I am to be found, "'to deliver a discourse unto you? Or will you come like a thirsty swallow "'upon the next day, and upon the day after that, "'and upon the day after that, "'and upon many pleasant days to hear discourses?' "'This with a cow-like lightness. "'Joe, whose immediate object "'seems to be to get away on any terms, "'gives a shuffling nod. "'Mr. Guppy then throws him a penny and Mrs. Snagsby calls to Guster to see him safely out of the house. But before he goes downstairs, Mr. Snagsby loads him with some broken meats from the table, which he carries away, hugging in his arms. So Mr. Chadband, of whom the persecutors say that it is no wonder he should go on for any length of time uttering such abominable nonsense, but that the wonder rather is that he should ever leave off, having once the audacity to begin retires into private life until he invests a little capital of supper in the oil trade. Joe moves on, through the long vacation, down to Blackfriars Bridge where he finds a baking, stony corner wherein to settle his repast. And there he sits, munching and gnawing and looking up at the Great Cross on the summit of St Paul's Cathedral, glittering above a red and violet-tinted cloud of smoke. From the boy's face, one might suppose that sacred emblem to be in his eyes the crowning confusion of the great confused city, so golden, so high up, so far out of his reach. There he sits, the sun going down, the river running fast, the crowd flowing by him in two streams, everything moving on to some purpose and to one end, until he is stirred up and told to move on to. End of chapter 19